0: Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders.
1: Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries, and they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet.
0: A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world.
1: We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond.
0: Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland.
1: It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest in their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward.
0: Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. This week, a historian who is concerned with the future of American democracy.
2: We've lost confidence in our institutions. We've lost confidence in our leaders. And most troublingly, we've lost confidence in one another.
0: But this alumnus and author believes that Americans have what it takes to reconnect and reverse that trend.
2: We can rediscover that which unites us as a people and work to make our communities better.
0: Today on Stanford Pathfinders, part of the inspiration for the new documentary American Creed, Professor Emeritus David Kennedy. Here's your host, Howard Wolf.
1: Stanford opened its doors on October 1st, 1891 on a glorious fall day. David Starr Jordan, Stanford's first president, gave a rousing speech in which he shared that Stanford was hallowed by no traditions and hampered by none. With no history to support it, David Starr Jordan had no choice but to look forward. Since that day, however, Stanford has not only created much history, but celebrated its history at every opportunity. Perhaps this is because the university is young at only 126 years, or perhaps it is because it boasts faculty who deeply understand the importance of history. One such faculty member is David Kennedy, a Stanford alumnus, professor of history emeritus, and a Stanford citizen beyond compare. A noted author and expert on American history, Professor Kennedy won a Pulitzer Prize for History for Freedom From Fear, The American People in Depression and War, 1929 to 1945. But most recently, Professor Kennedy has been working on a fascinating new project that combines his expertise in American history with his love of country. David, we're thrilled you're on the show. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks, Howard. Happy to be here.
1: So tell us a bit about this new movie you just launched.
2: It's called American Creed, uh, pure and simple. That's the full title. Condi Rice and I made this film together along with, uh, well, the the production company is called uh, Citizen Film. They're a film company in San Francisco and a very good one. Uh, But Condi and I had a conversation or a series of conversations maybe half a dozen years ago in which we were just talking about the health of the republic. And we were expressing to one another our concern that the republic was not in the healthiest of all possible states. So we asked each other, what can we do about this, if anything? How can we contribute to better health? We talked about teaching a course together. We talked about writing a book together. And eventually we got around to talking about making a film together. And as Connie tells the story, she went to her filmmaking pal, Randy Bean, who's a longtime Stanford videographer, And said, we've been thinking of a book, and now we're thinking of a film. What do you think? And according to Condi, Randy said, go write a book. (laughs) And she's a filmmaker. But we ended up making the film. Had you ever
1: made a film before?
2: Well, I've consulted on a lot of films and been a talking head in a lot of films. And that's essentially what we are here. We're kind of the shepherds or the sherpas for a series of seven or eight vignettes or stories about various people around the country or doing things in their communities.
1: So you did this with Condi Rice there could not be two more different members of the Stanford faculty than you and Condi. I mean, in almost every way, gender, race, (laughs) ethnicity, you know, political position, what have you. How is it that the two of you came together? Or is that indicative of what the movie's about?
2: That's very indicative of what the movie's about. In fact, uh, there's an early scene in the film where we're in a classroom with about a dozen or so first-generation low-income students. Stanford students? Stanford students. And we introduced the seminar, it was an afternoon seminar with them, where I say, just what you said, or a version of what you just said, that Condi and I are two different people. We're not the same race, not the same gender. We worship in different pews. We belong to different political parties. We come from different regions. We've had different life histories. And we see the world differently. But we share a love for this country and a deep concern about its state of health. And this was how many years ago, before the Trump election? Well before the Trump election. The film was largely made. I'd say two-thirds or three-quarters of it were shot in, in the can before the Trump election. So we, we started about six years ago. And as the, those who watch the film will see, uh, it consists principally in these – it varies depending on the length of the film. There's various lengths of the thing that show. So I think there's six or seven episodes. And there are stories about various people around the country doing various things. So the lead episode is about Joe Madden. The manager of the Chicago Cubs and what he's doing in his hometown of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, which is a town that, to put it mildly, is down on its luck and very divided by ethnic issues, especially regarding immigration. So Joe Madden, bless him, he went back there to revitalize Little League teams that are multiracial, racial multi-ethnic as a way of getting the community to come together, and it's been highly successful. So his is one story, but there are several others of different people around the country doing things that we think are examples of how we can rediscover that which unites us as a people and work to make our communities better. So I had the great fortune to
1: see the movie a couple of weeks ago in a, in a showing here on campus. And I was struck by the fact that the movie attempts to answer the question, what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States of America today? What are those rights? What are those responsibilities? What does it mean to be a citizen? Because it feels like we've lost that answer, like we've lost our way.
2: I think that's right. I think we have. And we say that flat out in the, in the first minutes of the film that we have lost our sense of what unites us as a people and as a country, the rights and obligations of citizenship have shrunk down to an absolute bare minimum. Virtually the only exclusive right of citizenship that's left, that's exclusive to the fact of citizenship, not merely residency in the country, is the right to serve on a jury. Military service is not uh, uh, obligatory and, of course, everybody has to pay taxes whether citizen or not. So all the things we associate with participating in the public realm or in the public square have been reduced really to the obligation to jury duty. And I don't know about you, but most people I know aren't eager to serve on uh, juries and they, in fact, find very creative and clever ways not to do so. So we have no responsibilities. You could go through the whole arc of your life in this society from birth to death as a nominal citizen of the United States and do very little other than pay taxes to uh, signify that you're a member of a polity or a community that needs your participation. And this
1: compares negatively to what was 20, 30, 40 years ago.
2: I believe so. There are all kinds of reasons for that. But the, the polling data, we have very good, reliable public opinion polling data going back into the 1950s, if not before. But it's plenty reliable from the 50s on. And we find – there's a consistent trend. There's no real meaningful reversal of the trend over the last half century plus that we've lost confidence in our institutions. We've lost confidence in our leaders. And most troublingly, we've lost confidence in one another. The polling data goes to what people – how much they trust one another, their neighbors, their friends and so on and so forth. And trust is just evaporated is, in our society. Does that society. speak
1: to the polarization that we Yeah, I think, I think it has
2: something to do with political polarization. People have, feel that they have less in common with one another, and so they distrust one another, and they all bunch up in their various tribes, and they, don't, they think that anybody that doesn't belong to their tribe doesn't really have legitimacy. So
1: when I was growing up, I'm 59 years old. There were Rockefeller Republicans and there were Southern Democrats, and frankly, other than the names, you really couldn't tell them all that far apart, right? That's right. The two parties overlapped. But now we feel as, at least in governance, that they're really separated, although maybe the populace isn't as separated and polarized, but at least our political leaders are.
2: Well, this is a complicated subject, and one of the people who's weighed in most cogently about this is our Stanford colleague Mo Fiorina in political science. And he argues that on the one hand, the, the public as a, as a generality is not as polarized as common wisdom has it, but that people have sorted themselves into the two political parties so that the two parties are quite polarized. And that pulls them. Yes. It makes compromise and the kinds of thing that makes democracy work all that more difficult. So
1: you said moments ago that you and Condi decided to do this film because you're worried about the republic. What worries you about the republic?
2: This is not the fabled rocket science. You just pick up the paper, listen to radio or television or your Facebook stream or whatever, any given day, and you'll share a sense, I think, of something's wrong with the country, that we cannot seem to get our business done, that we – to go back to what we were saying a moment ago, we mistrust one another, we mistrust our institutions. And actually the data on mistrust or lack of trust can be parsed out in several different ways. So people in the south – are less trustful than people who live in the rest of the country. There's a big regional difference. Hmm. Minorities, including black people, are less trustful than are white people. That's another big racial and ethnic difference. And most disturbingly, the demographic category or group in our society that is least trustful of other people, not just institutions, but other people, is millennials. That
1: does not bode well.
2: The youngest people in our society, the people who are the future of this society, are the most afflicted by this uh, lack of trust. And what do you think that's about? One thing I, I believe, it's partly about the fact that our institutions and our leaders have not won our confidence in the last generation or two. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. I was in China about uh, now about two years ago, and I rode on one of their high-speed trains. They have 15 high-speed rail lines. The one I rode on was absolutely fabulous. I went from Beijing to Shanghai and back again over a few days. And the train is fast. It's 200 miles an hour, steady constantly. It's smooth. It's, it, the ride is absolutely like silk. The train is antiseptically clean. There's wonderful service. It's quiet. I mean, it's, got, it's just a really terrific piece of technology. So I was talking to a Chinese colleague, and I said something about how much I'd enjoyed the ride on this train. And he said, why don't you stay longer in our country and ride one of our other 15 lines, uh, high-speed rail lines? <laughs> I said, well, I can't. I have to go home. And he said, well, how many high-speed rail lines— do you have in the United States? I said, well, we don't have any, not one. And he looked a little surprised. He said, well, why not? So I thought, aha, here's a chance for a little uh, history lesson. So I, I ginned up on the spot a little bit of a mini lecture sermon about the nature of the American political system and how it was founded in the 18th century by people who were deeply suspicious of executive or monarchical power. So they build in all these famous We'd call them today vetoes. We learned about them in civics class as kids as checks and balances. And we designed a system. We actually designed a system that was purpose-built to be very difficult to use. That's the nature of our political system. So I was going on about this, and he was looking more and more puzzled, this Chinese fellow. And I thought, well, either I'm using vocabulary or getting into conceptual territory that's challenging for him in his second language— but finally, he interrupted me. He said, oh, I get it. He said, I understand. He said, it's your system. That's the problem. He said, so why don't you change your system? He said, we've done it several times in the last century. Why don't you do it? <laughs> but uh, that's not a practical idea. But the fact is, we do have a constitutionally ordained system that was purpose-built by our founders to make government the thing that does, in fact, encompass us all. Uh, a very difficult instrument to use. So why are we the only country in the OECD group, in the Western world, advanced industrial countries, that does not have universal health care? Why do we have so- what the uh, Society of Civil Engineers estimates is something like $1.4 trillion of backlogged infrastructure needs that simply haven't been attended to for the last 20 or 30 years? Uh, so on and so forth. We, we Systemic have dif- problems. We have Exactly. We have difficulty doing the kinds of things that citizens of other advanced industrialized countries by now, take to be part of the right of citizenship.
1: So let me ask you something that is related to this. How much do all of this have to do with the degradation in the quality of journalism in America today?
2: Howard, I don't think the problem is the quality of the press or the degradation of the quality of the press. I would say the issue, with, if we're talking about the media in general, yes. is the fragmentation of the media and the proliferation of media outlets. So, when I was growing up, and I think this even edges into the period when you were growing up, there were essentially three network television stations or networks, and maybe, I don't know, a dozen at the most authoritative newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, and so on. And most people in the country took their news and got their news about the world from that relatively finite set of sources. So they were getting essentially the same information. And all of those organizations that I just mentioned—people might argue about this—but I think all of them tried to hold themselves to high standards of journalism, facticity, and accuracy, and objectiveness,
1: so well edited, balanced, and researched, yes, all and that, balanced.
2: But then the technology gave us not just a dozen major newspapers and three television networks, but you, you can't count them. I mean, just zillions of media outlets, especially in the form of social media. And technology at that juncture intersected with something that the behavioral economists like Amos Tversky at Stanford and Daniel Kahneman at Princeton have been educating us about called confirmation bias. That we all, every one of us, we tend to give more credence to those news reports or those opinions that agree with all are already held. It views. pings a certain it's place. It's a very in our brain. natural human tendency, absolutely. And now there's so many of these they can microcast to the, this community, that community, this affinity group, that affinity group. And reinforce its view of the world. We and all live in our own little echo chamber. You bet. And we don't listen to one another. So as Condi says in the film, there's a moment in the film where she says, I tell my students, if you only talk to people who say amen to everything you say, you need a new group of friends. This is Stanford Pathfinders.
1: More with historian and professor emeritus David Kennedy. Coming up... This is Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM Insight 121. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with historian and Professor Emeritus David Kennedy. The movie is called American Creed, and Creed refers to a set of beliefs that we all hold in common. Yes. So in your research for this movie or other work that you've done, is there anything that all Americans believe in common?
2: Yes, I believe the phrase American creed was put into popular parlance about three-quarters of a century ago in a what was it at the time a landmark famous book called An American Dilemma written by the Swedish economist Gunnar Myrdal, who later won the Nobel Prize in economics. The book itself, An American Dilemma, was published in 1944 in the midst of World War II was commissioned by the Carnegie Corporation in the 1930s to undertake a thorough, empirical, factually rich study of race relations in the United States. Martin Luther King called this book, incidentally, called Myrdal's book, The Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. Interesting. Because Myrdal's argument was the United States as a country has these professed ideals – They're enshrined in the founding documents. All men are created equal. equal protection under the law. It's in the Constitution. It's in the Declaration. But it doesn't live up to them in the case of black people or today we would say African-American people. And that dilemma must come to resolution of some kind. And of course the, the classic civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, was the way to resolve the dilemma is to live up to our own professed standards. And Myrdal said, even a poor and uneducated white person in some isolated and backward rural region in the deep south believes in liberty, equality, justice, and fair opportunity for everybody. Liberty? Equality, equality justice, justice, and fair, and fair opportunity. opportunity. So he, he just posited this. This is his premise, that this this is the American creed. This is what we stand for as a people. So he's
1: an outsider looking in and yes. saying, this is what I believe America stands for. Yes. This
2: not, is what we all believe. Well, he, he went a step further. He said, it's not only what the country stands for, that's one thing. It's what all Americans have at some level internalized. Everybody believes this. They don't live up to it necessarily, but they have this value set, I suppose we'd say, in a more clinical language, inside them. And so the nation must live up to its principles and individuals must live up to their own deepest beliefs. That, that's the argument in the book. So that's what we took it for the title from.
1: Republicans and Democrats, conservatives everybody, and everybody. liberals, yeah. populists and elites, whatever they are,
2: yeah. this is what we all In another Americans passage in, in the book, Beardall says something about uh, even an, a poor immigrant farmer, a poor immigrant in Chicago, a poor farmer in Minnesota, uh, a black person in Alabama, a white person in Boston, they all believe this at some place in the core of their being. And we can summon that to action we can summon this creed this belief in fairness and equality and opportunity uh, to make a better society and that's what you want to do with this film, exactly yeah and
1: so my understanding is that this film is not the end of an effort but in many ways the beginning of a new effort right and that you want this film to be a way to be a catalyst for conversations all over this country
2: well that's our fondest hope absolutely
1: and so tell us how that would work and and how people can get involved
2: well, this is a little bit of a work in progress, so I can't be as precise and concrete as I'd like to be. But uh, you're absolutely right. The concept is that this film will be a platform and a launching pad for a longer effort that will go on, we hope, for several years in which uh, civic groups, community groups, community organizations, teachers in classrooms and in community halls around the country can use the film or parts of it. You can; It'll be available in edited versions. You probably can edit your own version out of it. Uh, One one or two of the stories, let's say, instead of the whole 58 minutes uh, and use that as a platform on which to start community conversations about how we can rediscover uh, our creedal beliefs in the character of this country and our own highest and best ideals. So we've partnered with uh, the National Writing Project, which is a major educational support organization based in Berkeley. Uh, I had not heard of it either. You're shaking your head until you caught that shake until, in my head. Sorry. until uh, <laughs> until uh, just uh, actually a few months ago. But it turns out they're a very uh, high octane and effective organization that uh, supports and produces educational materials and supports educational programs around the country. And they're our principal partner, but we have partners with another organization called Facing History in Ourselves, which has been trying to teach tolerance in schools and promote the teaching of tolerance for the last 20 years or so. They've been around maybe more than that. Um, So we, we have partners out there. We hope to get more. Uh, we, of course we need funding to really make the thing go, but we have some in hand already and we're trying to uh, make this a, a sustained major effort to stimulate conversation around the country about how we can reattach ourselves to the creed and the values on which this country was founded and live up to the best uh, ideals that we have.
1: So you mentioned earlier that millennials have seemingly lost trust in each other and institutions and and, and here you teach at Stanford University. You're emeritus, but you're everywhere. You've been here on faculty for close to-
2: I'm afraid it's 51 50, years.
1: 51 years. <laughs> I was going to let you say the number, not me. Do the students of today give you hope or do they give you fear?
2: Well, again, I wouldn't quite use either of those words. Then they, what words would you well, use? Well, they give me a little anxiety um, about a couple of things. Compared to the era when I was a student in the 1960s uh, here at Stanford and then graduate student at Yale and back here at Stanford teaching as of 1967, uh, that was an era in which young people were deeply engaged in the public arena uh, because of two big issues that were driving the country powerfully at that time, civil rights so movement and, and the, the Vietnam War. So you came back in – you hit the
1: timing beautifully.
2: Yeah. I stepped right into the, jaw, the, the jaws mail. of the dragon. Yes. <laughs> Um, but so it, it, it was part of just our our upbringing, our, our our nature to be politically engaged in that generation. Not least of all because of the moral compulsion of those two big issues. Students today don't. There's no issue out there. It seems to me that has comparable valence or power to really mobilize them. As a generation, there are issues that mobilize certain sectors of them uh, about around certain issues. And it's me- very atomized. Hashtag yes. MeToo being yes. So that's my that's my second point. So there's uh, exactly you anticipated me. So there's less kind of general civic engagement, but then there's passionate engagement about what I'll call micro issues. That that maybe isn't quite the right language, but but specific issues. Uh, And people get entrenched in their commitment to a specific issue and that's all laudable so far as it goes. But just to that extent, it makes it more difficult the more deeply entrenched you are to talk to people who have other issues as their priority. Uh, And of course, it's part of the work of democracy is to reconcile people's different preferences – so that we can all get along with each other. And that's, that's the work of government. That's the work of politics. It go, that goes back as far as Aristotle. That's what politics is all about, is the mechanisms we come up with to enable us to live with one another even though we don't all have exactly the same schedule of preferences.
1: And in many ways, technology has exacerbated this Precisely. problem. Precisely. Because yeah. what it does is it allows anyone to find that little sliver of interest that really engages them and go deeply and then surround themselves with people that feel exactly the same way they do. Precisely. And the passion that comes out is very, very strong. So Sheryl Sandberg, who wrote this book, Lean In, and is a senior executive at Facebook, um, said something very, very powerful in her book. She said that young people today, especially those in college, find it difficult to disagree in an agreeable manner. And this concept of disagreeing with respect. Is this an issue that not only students deal with, but the country is dealing with today?
2: Yeah, I think uh, young people, students, are just a special case of a general social illness (laughs) that we have difficulty dealing with people of different persuasions. Um, And that's, I mean, that's life. People have different persuasions. But as a country for at least a couple of centuries, with the big conspicuous exception of the Civil War, of course, we did manage to get along as a people and believe that we had a common enterprise in advancing, I I was about to say perfecting, that's too utopian, but advancing the democratic agenda, making the country more of a model of the kind of democracy that we've aspired to since our origin. But for a whole complicated set of reasons that we're still figuring out, and historians will spend the next 50 to 100 years figuring out, in the last two, three, four decades, we've lost a lot of that mojo. And that's uh, thats what this film—
1: Is that mojo, is that a historian's term?
2: Yes, it is. It's a yes. te- technical tec- term. Yes, technical term? It comes from the Latin, yes. <laughs> 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 or maybe from the Greek. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, so we we do hope that then it's you know we don't want to be uh, silly about this. This film is not going to change the world, but we hope it will contribute in some modest way to promoting the kinds of conversations that we need to have.
1: So you said earlier that that uh, you and Condi teamed up on this, and that you were quite articulate in talking about all the ways that you differ. So you worked for, on this together for, what, three, four years?
2: Well, I, I'm a little, I, I was going to say I'm a little embarrassed that it's been six years in the making, this film. I could say cast of thousands of the usual kind of stuff. But no, it's been six years in the making. And I thought that was an inordinately long time. And compared to other documentaries I've worked on, it is a long time. But our filmmaker at Citizen Film told me the other night, actually, this is kind of a standard amount of time to make a film of this quality.
1: So over those six years, you worked quite closely with Condi. Someone you knew fairly well from the Stanford faculty, notwithstanding those hiatuses that she took to go back to Washington. What's the biggest surprise now that you worked this closely with her? Are you more similar than you thought?
2: Well, I think we're more – well, no. I No, I th- the kind I worked with is the kind i I've known for a long time. Okay. We, we, we have our different views and they, they come out to an extent in the film – Frankly, if I had it to do over or we could have one last iteration of uh, on the cutting room floor or whatever, uh, we might have brought this out a little more. But uh, the Condi's attachment to – well, how can I put it? She stands in her family history, stands for the, the ideal of opportunity yes. and uh, taking advantage of opportunity. My own family history has disposed me a different way. This comes out to an extent in the film. Because my father had his life absolutely broken in two by a catastrophic failure of his employment in the Great Depression. He was unemployed for six years, six years. Uh, so I, that's deeply in my DNA and I, I'm much more attached, you might say, I suppose, to the notion of security rather than opportunity. And between those two poles of what's the proper balance between security and opportunity – those, define, th- those two things define a, s- a spectrum of political difference and they define a degree of difference between Condi and me. That does not come out sharply in the film to be honest. Uh, it's there but you kind of have to watch closely to get it. What we agree on and the reason we ma- did the project and we stuck with it for six years is that this country needs to have a serious conversation about its uh, – the state of its health, the state of its political and social health.
1: And if you were to sign off on this radio show with one request of the American public, you've done this film, you have that one last chance. It's that one or two lines that you weren't able to put into the film, but you really want to convey to the American public about the future health of our republic. What would that be?
2: Well, actually, it's quite simple. And we do say it in the film. And I I can do it in two or maybe it's three words. Talk to one another.
1: David, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for joining us on Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM Insight 121. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app.